If you pay attention at all to your news feeds or to the news, you know that uh, matters of race and race relations have become very significant in our world. We've seen incidences um, played out before our eyes that are, I hope for you, deeply disturbing. Now we gotta know these are not new. Um, this sort of stuff has been going on. Most of the time it's just hidden from our view. But it's almost like the Holy Spirit has been at work and, and sort of saying, not any longer. It is time that this world addresses it. It's like we can't escape these realities, these matters anymore. And, and we in the church need to do some serious reflection on these matters too. We have a beautifully diverse congregation and we want to grow that. We need to grow that. And I, as your pastor, need to ask a lot of questions about myself because you know what? I'm white. <laughs> in case that was lost on you. <laughs> And, but here's the thing, it is a place of privilege. And so I have blinders on me and I don't see all the subtleties and, and the big uh, elements of racism that many of you encounter. And we as a church, you know, we're, we're Presbyterian and that, that emerged out of a, a very dominant white culture. And we as a church need to ask ourselves questions. And so we're going to do a little interview this morning. I've asked a member of our congregation uh, to come and uh, join me in an interview um, as we get set to hear God's word. I'm going to ask Peter Sam Raj if he could come up and join me up here. Yes. How about Hello. you? Hello. Peter, first of all, thank you so much for no being here. This is uh, yeah, a vulnerable place. Uh, for you to, to talk about this, but I'm really thankful for your courage to do this. So grateful for thanks, your presence. Thanks for the opportunity, Phil. So Peter, first of all, um, so you know we've been seeing events south of the border in the U.S. happen uh, regarding race, and, and I have a hunch, well, I've heard it, for a variety of Canadians, we can look at that and say, hmm, that's an American problem, um, without owning the reality that it, it's here too, north of the border. It's in Canada. So could you... Talk to us. Um, what are some of the ways that you have experienced racism? Are there subtle ways that you, maybe subtle overt ways that you see it operative here as well? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm originally from India. I came to Toronto to study, uh, to do my master's at U of T uh, four years ago. So I'm also removed from here in terms of culture as well. So I'm coming at it from that, that sort of perspective. And so I've noticed many things, I've experienced many things, and I guess that's what I'll be talking about. So, so I think most of you realize this as well, that racism exists in explicit and implicit ways. Uh, implicit, implicit racism is much more now than it used to be like 50 years ago. Uh, but I've also faced explicit racism. Most recent one was uh, I was in London, UK for a, a business meeting, and uh, it was two days after the Brexit vote. Uh, I was walking around downtown London near Camden Market, if some of you have been there. Um, I was approached by these two uh, white English guys. I'm assuming they were English because they had Cockney accents. So, uh, but they, were, they approached me and they 
and they told me something to the effect of, what are you doing here, George? Is your name George? Of course, your name is George. What are you doing here? And I didn't really get the reference, but I, and they were laughing about it as well, so I assumed that it was something not safe to engage in, so I just walked away. And later realized it was a reference to Curious George, who's a cartoon monkey. So, uh, so that was a jarring experience in, in, in London, UK. Uh, and before that, like, people have shouted racist stuff at me here in Toronto, like in some neighborhoods as well. Um, so definitely there is explicit racism around. Uh, but I think it is the implicit racism that is harder to notice, harder for you to address, harder for us to eradicate because it's not visible. Um, for me, that is reflected uh, because I'm a brown-colored man and I'm from India. It, is, uh, it manifests itself by uh, routinely being subject to more suspicion and, and in terms of security and trust. Um, news that comes out of India about safety of women doesn't really help that. Uh, so all of those things are a factor in terms of my social engagements. Um, also, like racism, implicit racism is uh, there at work at in the professional settings in big corporations. And you can see that like if you look at um, a big corporation and you see all the higher executive level, all the senior management being predominantly white, and you look at all the lower lower uh, levels of employees being very, very multicultural, representing the, the more broader population. And you ask questions why that is the case. And then you look at the engagements, the, the way people talk to each other. Uh, when a manager talks to somebody who's under him who's not white, but the manager is white, and they assume that this person is subservient, they assume that this person is dumb, they assume that this person will believe what they're told to believe. And that has been the manner of some of the meetings that I've had recently, and that really exposes the, the implicit assumed uh, character and, and, and the way people are assumed to be. Uh, for me, coming from India, like I'm an engineer, and uh, qualities of humility and being quiet and doing your stuff really well and not making a show of your work and all that stuff is very, those are like uh, virtues. So those things are assumed to be uh, signs of weaknesses and being not confident and all that, um, and you're you're told that you're not, you don't have the leadership abilities and all that stuff, which which is again like all of racism is uh, a belief in stereotypes and belief that you are you are you are a general idea that we have believed in. So yeah, yeah. Thanks, Peter. Um, so you know. And many of us know God's big, beautiful vision for the church, that this be a people gathered from every nation, tribe, tongue, color, um, that we be a unified and diverse people of God. It's a big vision. But how are we doing in the church? Have, have you experienced racism within the church? If so, how? And, and what does the church need to repent of? Yeah, this is, a, this is a sensitive question because it concerns us. You, you people who are sitting in the pews right now, you are the church. This is not a building. This is not an organization. This is not the church. When we use the word the church, it sort of removes it from us, but it, we are talking about you guys and me. Uh, so I think racism in the church has existed. Um, it is, for me, coming from India, I have seen this mostly... Um, predominantly in the form of a cultural appropriation of the gospel. So what I'm talking about here is a, the belief that 
the Western church has the gospel and it is communicating that gospel to all the churches in the world, the third world countries and the churches who have been planted by the Western church. Uh, this belief that the truth lies with the Western church and the leaders of the Western church, I think is a form of racism because uh, it leads to a belief that you cannot come up with something new, you cannot come up with some, some new insight if you're from the Eastern church. Um, that a belief that is uh, adopted in the Western church has to be adopted by the Eastern church. And sometimes I've, I've read articles where you, people with, withhold aid to, to churches in, in the third world because they don't believe in something that uh, a Western church has started to believe. Uh, so the cultural appropriation is, is one thing. For, from, for me, coming here as an Indian from India, I think the major problem in terms of like communicating the gospel or like talk, Christians being seen as Westerners in India is because of uh, British imperialism and that communicating the gospel in India with a packaged version of Jesus Christ and the British Empire. And that has made people averse to the worst of the gospel, and that is something we need to own, and we need to believe that it's, it is something we did wrong. Um, so that's, that's one thing, and there's, um, the second one I would say is like the monocultural interpretation of worship. Um, every, you go around in the world, uh, a large majority of churches worship with Hillsong songs. Um, they have a very similar way of worshiping uh, in the church, and this is again like an influence of of Western ch Western church being communicated everywhere. Why do we not encourage uh, a multicultural interpretation of worship? Our our congregation and many congregations in Toronto is multicultural. Why don't we worship in a way that is representative of the body of the church? Um, all these things are things we need to like think about. I think. Uh, in terms of like discipleship, leadership, and the operations of the church, I, I think also uh, there, there are ways in which we can think about what, what is what we do uh, based, on, based on what is easy, or is what we do based on the fact that we are the same family as, as part of God's body of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. beautiful. Um, are there any practical ways that you would encourage the church to pursue this dream of God's, of this people from all nations, tribes, tongues? Um, how, how do we become that? Um, any, any thoughts, practical ways you might recommend or encourage? I think uh, the practical answer is very simple, but it's also very hard. Uh, it is, it is the, the first thing is I think you need to... Uh, when you start addressing a problem, you need to realize that it is a problem. You need to realize that, we need to realize that each one of us here sitting in these pews and talking and listening, we are racist in, in some level. We, we, we are racist. And it, because the word is very obnoxious, it is a very loaded term, we sometimes don't believe that it's true, but it is, we carry in our hearts a bias and a discrimination that is not implicit, that is explicit sometimes, but it's also very subtle, and it will be hard to bring out. So I think the first step is to acknowledge that we are racist, that we choose things that are easy for us, that we choose familiar things, that we choose familiar people to be our friends, that we choose familiar people or like people who look like us, who have the same cultural values, to be around us and to work with us. 
I think we need to realize that. And then after that, we need to realize that fundamentally why we are here is because we are in the same family of God. We are relatives uh, in the family, and you need to ask a question. Would you treat somebody who's of the same blood as you in the way you're treating this person who's of a different appearance, who's of a different culture? Um, Another question that would be helpful to ask is, like, if there's a newcomer, if you're welcoming them, are we interested in them? Are we interested in their life stories? Or are we interested in the culture that they're from and the fact that they're exotic? Um, all, the, all these things are hard questions, but I think these need to be asked. Thanks so much, Peter. Uh, very grateful. Thank you. You bet. Why don't we thank Peter? <laughs> I don't know about you, this makes me want to pray, so why don't we do that? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the one, you're the Lord of all nations, and you are gathering all peoples to your church. And Lord, we want to be part of that movement, because it is a beautiful thing. It is the hope of this world that is so fractured on racial lines. It is the hope of this world that is killing one another based on these prejudgments and prejudices we bear in our hearts, whether explicitly or implicitly. God, we need you and the hope of the gospel to challenge our biases, our inherent racism. Would you purge us from it? We repent of it, God. And we turn to you. We turn to Christ, the sole source of the gospel. Unite us in Jesus. May the gospel heal us and make us a beautiful representation, God, of the dream that you have always had for this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to invite Ari to come and read scripture. Today's scripture is John chapter 17, verses 21 to 23. It's in your pure Bible 1,071. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I'm in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of God. Amen. Well, this morning, we are privileged to welcome to Knox Bernadette Arthur, who is uh, a coordinator for race relations in the Christian Reformed Church, a denomination across North America. So Bernadette, why don't you come forward, and I'd like to pray for you before you bring God's word. So welcome to Knox Church. And join me in prayer for Bernadette, would you? Almighty God, we thank you for 
all the gifts of people that you bring. And we thank you for Bernadette. We thank you for the good work that she is doing. It's such a gospel work, God. And we ask now that as she preaches the word, that you would anoint her with your spirit and that you would give us open, ready hearts to receive your word. So speak to us, God. Use your servant, Bernadette, in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, Knox. I really feel like I don't need to speak because Peter just broke it down <laughs> in 10, 10, 15 minutes. Thank you, Peter. Um, it's a privilege for me to be here. And so, Pastor Phil, thank you for the invitation. And I met Michelle. I don't know if she's here um, last year. And um, you have beautiful people here. If Michelle and Peter are, um, Phil are representations, then you have beautiful people here. So I'm glad to be here. And um, I provide a bit of a disclaimer um, before I begin. And that's that um, things will not be wrapped up in nice and tidy when I leave, when I finish speaking. And that's on purpose. Um, it's, been, it's been a pretty heavy time for people of color not just people of color, I think, you know, us as general, but for those who are, as we say in colloquial terms, woke, for those who um, understand it's, it's been a hard, it's been, it's been hard. And so um, I don't want to move to celebration or, you know, some warm and fuzzy feeling at the end. I'm just going to leave it and it's going to be unwrapped up, but thank God that the Holy Spirit works in all of that messiness. So I'd like you to picture it. It's about 10.30 p.m. on a chilly October night. I'm frantically making my way across the massive parking lot of Square One, and I'm trying to locate the correct bus space so that I can get back to Hamilton. The bus is scheduled to leave in 90 seconds. I stand in the middle of the fairly abandoned parking lot, and I'm desperately staring at the blue dot on my phone. The blue dot is a part of the Google Map, Google blah, blah blah Google Map app, and it tells you where you're going versus where you're where you need to be. So, judging on where the blue dot is compared to the gray dot, I'm getting warmer and warmer, but I'm not yet hot, and this is making me anxious because I've got about 45 seconds left. I'm exhausted. My knapsack is really heavy, and. The truth is that if I miss this bus, it's about 10.30 at night, I'm gonna to have to wait another hour for the next bus. So, what do you think that I do? A, do I call an Uber? B, do I turn around and head to the Starbucks? I might as well get a hot beverage for the hour wait. C, do I phone a friend? Or D, do I book it across the parking lot and hope that I'm going to end up in the right spot and catch the right bus? D? D? It's a pretty prophetic group. <laughs> so I did what made perfect sense to me at the moment. I choose the bus bay that I thought my bus was sitting at, and I run across the parking lot. 
So I'm doing this awkward little quick shuffle across the parking lot with one outstretched hand looking at my cell phone and my eyes darting from the blue dot to the bus that I see sitting there. And all of a sudden, suddenly, it hits me. Or rather, I hit it. The pavement. Face first, hands sprawled out in front of me. I pause and I feel a wave of embarrassment, shock, and then pain wash over my body. I turn my head to the left and look at this arm, which looks oddly like Gumby's, or if you don't know who Gumby is, a piece of loose spaghetti. I say to myself, self, something is definitely not right here. And then aloud, I cry out into the darkness of the night, Somebody, please help me. And there you have it. There's the story of how, at 35 years old, I experienced my first broken bone. I spent the night in the hospital wondering, where did this night go wrong? And for those interested in such details, my fall resulted in a dislocated shoulder, a broken left, a broken left humerus, which is right here, and a bruised chin and frazzled nerves. Is there anyone else in the room who can testify to the impact that a broken bone or other type of malady has to your rest of your body? Anybody ever experienced a broken bone? Sickness in the body? Yes, totally not fun. It wasn't until church that I broke that bone that I realized my need for my left humerus. All of a sudden, daily tasks were challenging. It took over an hour to get ready for the day, and my right arm had to work overtime, twice as hard to compensate. My right elbow down to this was so stiff because it was up like this, that anytime I moved it, it was in excruciating pain because there was, um, what do you call that? Uh, a trophy? of the muscle. Is that right? So the interesting thing is that we seem to be readily able to recognize the interdependence of our physical bodies more than that of the spiritual or ecclesiastical body of the church. I'm going to ask if we can pick up those red Bibles or your cell phones or your iPads or Androids or whatever it is that you have. Um, I definitely like to interact with the text and like for you to do the same as I believe the Spirit speaks to not only me, but to all of us. So if we can all look up 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27, I will grab one of these mics. Sorry that I didn't tell you that before. And if somebody could read that, that would be awesome. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27. Just 12, 27? 12 to 27. Mm -hmm. 12. Okay. 12 to 27. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. 
now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the sense of hearing be, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat them with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Amen. Amen. So I ask you, how does Paul describe the body in relation to its parts? You can put up your hand and I can, unless you've got a booming preacher voice. Mm -hmm. Each part of the body has a function. Okay. How does Paul describe the body in relation to its parts? What do we see here? Holistically, it's all, it's all one. Mm -hmm. And if one part is one part is damaged, then the whole is damaged. Yeah. So if you one more time, sorry. So holistically, as a as a whole, one unit. If one part is damaged, then the whole body is damaged. If you know one part of the spirit is broken, then the whole spirit is broken. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Ooh, let's not break another something. <laughs> Even if one part says it's no longer a part of the body, it still is part of the body. Right. right. Anyone else? One more? Mm -hmm. um, there's diversity in the, the parts. Mm -hmm. so individually, they're different, but together, they form a very beautiful whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Thank you. We will continue to do this. So as you've mentioned, the picture that we get is of a unit that's comprised of diverse parts, as my brother said. Nowhere do we get the impression that there's uniformity trying to be achieved among the parts. In fact, Paul blatantly states that the body cannot be defined as such if it has taken on the identity of one of its parts. This means that if the megachurch in Mississauga, and I'm not referring to any specific megachurch, believes and teaches that they are the only church that accurately reflects the image of Christ, then they would be wise to rethink their perspective. The text is clear that one church alone cannot embody the body. 
it can only contribute to the body. The body is not a part, but it's a sum of parts, a unit. This also means that the little church on the corner who works diligently to be Jesus' hands and feet in their neighborhood cannot rightly say, we have no need of that mega church in Mississauga. Because according to verse 21, the eye cannot say it has no need of the hand. No part functions in isolation of the other parts. It functions with the aid of the other parts. So to have those concepts or that no, those notions are actually, it's deceptive. Each church or member of the body only finds its identity in relation to the body's other parts. A foot is only so in relation to the hand. A foot ceases to exist and have identity outside of its connection to the body. It would just be a foot that would be just sitting there dying. It cannot even function outside of the body's structure. This means that all parts are relative and they're relational. The other point that's salient in this text is that each part enjoys and experiences a different perspective. Peter um, illustrated that in, 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 his, in his conversation with Pastor Phil. The vantage point that the eye has of the world and of the body is completely different than that of the knee. But each part is needed for there to be more than just optical, optimal functioning, but for survival. Therefore, the body of Christ cannot have a full view of the world unless there's mutuality, equality, and a need for every part. This notion of unity and interdependence was not only expressed by Paul. I know some people have some issues with what Paul says. <laughs> but um, also by Jesus as well. In his infamous priestly prayer, Jesus prays in John 17, 20 to 24, if we can look that up, John 17, 20 to 24. Jesus prays about this concept of unity as well. If I could get someone to read that. Okay, I have someone here. Yes, thank you. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me wherever I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Thank you. So I went to Tyndale 
And um, I was a teacher assistant for a very godly and wise man. His name was Dr. Stan Walters. And Dr. Walters always used to say, observe the text. And what that meant is that he wanted us to dig deeper and to think about the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, the how of the text. And so I ask you, what do we see in this text? What is Jesus saying to us in this text when he prayed for us? That we may be one. Anyone else? As a testimony to the love, as a, as a testimony to Hashem, we say Hashem to His love. As a testimony to Jesus Christ for the love of the Father and His children. Mm -hmm. What else do we see here? That that the unity, the the oneness between us reflects the oneness between God and Jesus. Mm -hmm. One more? Anybody else? Okay. So like you, I saw those things. In verses 21 and 22, when we zoom in, we see that he asked that all of them, that's us, his followers, would be one. As the Father... Um, is in him, and he, and, the, and he was in the Father. What's cool is that the word one in the Greek is used to indicate something that's universal as opposed to a division into parts. Thus again we see that although there are parts, because he was talking about multiple people, we see that these parts are so unified that the parts represent distinction but not division. The parts represent distinction, but not division. Does this concept not mirror the image of the body that Paul spoke of in Corinthians? When we look at verse 22, we hear Jesus repeat the same sentiment, but he throws in another statement. He says that we've been given the glory of God so that we can experience unity with each other and the Godhead. The English word glory translates to the Greek word doxa. It conveys God infinite and intrinsic worth. According to Strong's Concordance, glory is a most glorious condition and exalted state. It's of that condition with God the Father in heaven to which Christ was raised after he achieved his work on earth. This is very exciting for me. Jesus says that in order for us to have unity, that he's given us an amazing gift. This is the gift of the glory that God gave to him. I still am trying to unpack this because like, what does that really mean? We've been given glory. But what I have been able to understand is this. The praise, the honor, the good opinion and worth that God gave Christ has been given to us so that we can be unified. Let that sink in. The glory of Christ has been given to me, to you, so that we can have power to live as the body of Christ. What are we doing with that glory? It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 4, 7, 2 verses 4 to 7. 
In that text, it says that God raises us up and seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms, which means that he's exalted us and allowed us to share in the glory that Christ, gave, um, Christ was given because he loves us. It's this generousness and our acknowledgement of it that we've done nothing to earn it and that it empowers us, that it, that is what is empowers us to live as a diverse and unified body. It's being a recipient of this glory which should compel us to deal with each other in humility, in gentleness, in patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That comes from Ephesians 2. Now I could wrap up now because I've sufficiently talked about unity, but if I did, I would not do this justice. Neither would we be prepared to deal with the reality of what happens when we leave these doors. The reality is, is that there's fissures, there's breaks, there's maladies in the body that require healing and reconciliation. And the truth is that unity costs something. The diverse parts are not yet working properly and the body as a whole is still growing in maturity. If you don't believe me, let's look at Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Here we see that not yet aspect. There's a now aspect of the kingdom and there's a not yet aspect of the kingdom. And we see the not yet. We see uh, a growing, right? Do we see that? It's not yet manifested yet. And so that's why I say that the parts are not yet working properly. We're not, we haven't yet grown up into maturity because we still feel like the Baptists don't really get it, or the Pentecostals don't really, you know, have it right, and we're, we're still divided, right? So when we talk about unity without reconciliation, it actually is placating and patronizing. Because of the effects of sin, the body of Christ turns on itself, and parts have been and continue to be cancerous, creating impacts that are felt for generations to come. And when we ignore this, it's placating and it's patronizing. 
What I mean is this. When European Christians incorrectly acted on the premise that the eye had no need of the body, paternalistic and racist beliefs and practices began to emerge. The doctrine of discovery was a series of papal bulls that sanctioned and promoted the conquest, colonization, and exploitation of non-Christian nations and their territories. This religious belief was adopted not just by Catholics, but by the, by the church as a whole. And its ensuing racist practices promoted the annihilation of First Nation people groups, the decimation of First Nation and other people groups' culture, the unjust acquisition of land, the installation of residential schools, the justification of transatlantic, the transatlantic slave trade, the installation of the notion that Christianity was synonymous with Anglo-Saxon views, beliefs, and cultures. This morning I logged onto Facebook and I read this post. Tonight, three people were making racist, Islamophobic, and sexist threats at families living in my building, shouting at Muslim children, calling them the N-word, and threatening to rape their sisters. My boyfriend and I, who were just down the sidewalk, asked them to stop. One of the men became increasingly aggressive and told us that he would hurt both of us. I walked a bit away to call the police and turned around to see the two men repeatedly punching my boyfriend, who is the kindest pacifist and wasn't retaliating. I tried to get in between them, got punched in the face, and fell to the ground. The real heartbreak and fury for me stems from our interaction with the police, who questioned why we talked to the men when I live in a bad neighborhood and told us that there are people all over the city saying mean things and that they don't arrest people for saying bad things. I'd never really been hit before, so I'm shaken up by the physical assault and by witnessing their attack on my, on my boyfriend. But I'm ultimately outraged at the structures or systems that permit three white people to violently threaten racialized people without any real consequences, and they continue to insist that hate crimes are down in Hamilton. This happened a block away from where I live, last night. The anger, sadness, and grief that I read on my Facebook timeline a couple weeks ago after the senseless murders of two black men and five cops in the US did not solely come from my American brothers and sisters, but the outcry came from my Canadian brothers and sisters who expressed not only sadness, grief, and anger, but real fear. Knox Presbyterian, the earth is groaning. Our racialized and marginalized brothers and sisters, whether, we are, whether it's racialized or you're marginalized because of your sexual orientation, we are crying out for justice and equity, but who is listening? We cannot talk about unity if we are adamant about being colorblind and insisting that all lives matter when clearly our policies and practices don't reflect this. People of color who experience privilege, and I say this because <laughs> it makes my work even more difficult. When people of color who experience privilege because of the neighborhood that they live in, because of the job that they have, or the degree that they've earned, 
When they say, I made it, they should just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And I ask you, if this is your, your perspective, to deeply consider whether your story is the, the story of the, the collective or of the minority. I would suggest that as long as we continue to experience first in this country, that there remains inequities that we cannot ignore from the place of privilege that we sit. Canadian Christians, I'm afraid that just like in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6.14 says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. On the topic of reconciliation, social psychologist and Christian author Christina Cleveland shares that believers should practice social imagination as, it, as it's a practice that Jesus demonstrated. Christ was able to see the social structures that were around him, and he understood how the factors influenced who he was as an individual, the social groups that were around him, and the systems that surrounded him. And he understood how those belief systems embodied and affected him and others. In short, Christ was aware of his social location. He saw the invisible structures of racial history, socioeconomic privilege, and theological legacy, which afforded him power within the social structure. And what Christ demonstrated was a model for reconciliation. He who knew all power emptied himself of it so that we could be reconciled. This is the act of incarnation. Philippians 2 describes it. You can read it on your own. In spite of equality, he shifted his location on the social structure. True reconciliation requires that those of us who are privileged, whether we are white or we are people of color, that we who are powerful that we extend the divide and cross to those who are not. I challenge you to go back and look at the Gospels to see how Jesus demonstrated sociological imagination. Before we go, let me leave you with this um, illustration. Jesus stops at a well in Samaria. He tells his disciples to go on ahead of him, and he sits there. At the well, a woman comes, a woman who's of Samaria, who is Samaritan. Jesus asks her for, not a trick question, water. <laughs> so Jesus asks her for water, and a discussion ensues. I want you to think about this. What was Christ's social location? When you think about his class, when you think about his gender. Privileged. Can you tell me why? What made him, what would you say made him privileged? He was Jewish. A man. Say it again. Of the line of David, thank you. He was a rabbi, he was a teacher. All of these things afforded him a certain privilege. Yes, he was of the oppressed group. Yes, the Romans had oppressed him. But when you look at him and you look at the woman at the well, he had privilege and power.
Let's look at the woman at the well. What was her social location? Samaritan. Samaritan. And immediately, if you look at that text, the first thing that she says to him, how could you ask me of water when you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan? If we pretend that people don't see and understand where we lie versus where they lie, then we're fooling ourselves and we really can't have authentic cross-cultural relationships. So she says, you're, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. What else was about her would, that would give us an understanding of her social location? Unmarried? Is that what I heard? Okay. Yes. What about her gender? Female. She was coming to the well at a time when people didn't really, women didn't really come. Women would have came earlier. I think the fact that she had five husbands and the one that was hers wasn't, you know, hers, that probably played a part into it as well. Does Jesus notice this? I would say yes. Because he brings the gospel to her and he allows her voice to be heard and elevated. And he doesn't choose to go to Samaria, um, to that village, and share the gospel with the, rich, the richest ruler that he could find. He finds a woman whose voice would have been marginalized. He finds a woman who would have been outcasted by her society, and he shares it with her. And because of her, her whole town hears the good news. Jesus shifted his, um, his, his power so that somebody else would be able to receive that. And when we're talking about reconciliation, that's what we need to talk about. That's true reconciliation. Then we can talk about unity. So as we leave each other today, I want you to look within the walls of Knox. You are a body that's growing in diversity, and it's beautiful to see this. Is your unity superficial? Or authentic? Does it include reconciliation or is it limited to cultural celebrations and potlucks? Outside of Knox, what is your relationship with other members of the body of Christ, especially with those churches in this neighborhood that don't look like you, sound like you, or act like you, or believe like you? The earth is groaning, brothers and sisters. It's crying out and by the grace of God, the power of the Spirit, and of the glory that's been given to us, let us strive for a true and authentic unity so that the body can be built up in love and the world would know that the Father sent Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen. Amen.